How many of you uh, made uh, some New Year's resolutions uh, last week? A few of you? Maybe a few? I see a few hands. How many of you have broken them already? Maybe a few of us also. You know, New Year's resolutions just seem to be part and parcel of what we do when the New Year comes around. We decide that we uh, want to lose weight and maybe exercise more. We decide that we want to watch less TV and read better books. Uh, We aim for less time at the office and more time at home. Well, in the church, we make New Year's resolutions as well. Well, They typically, as you would imagine, at least hopefully, would have to do with spiritual matters in our relationship with God in the church and other believers. Things like, I want to read the Bible more this coming year. Maybe you read all the way through it. Or I would like to spend more time in prayer consistently. Maybe get to church more often, uh, be a little more generous in my offering, or get more involved. At the beginning of a new year, as Christians, we tend to want to start and turn over a new leaf, spiritually speaking. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about starting 2012 off on the right foot. And I know Pastor David last week on New Year's Day uh, spoke about starting the new year and living the next year according to our convictions. Well, today I'd like to build on that and focus in on the area of the quality and the nature of our relationship with with God, in particular in the area of of prayer. Uh, The Bible tells us we're supposed to pray. We all know we're supposed to pray, but it seems like one of those things that sometimes it's, it's just hard for us to be disciplined about it and make it a part of our regular routine and pattern, which is which is a real shame because, honestly, if you want to go deeper in Christ, as our mission statement says, and go further in mission, it all is fueled by prayer. Prayer draws us deeper into the heart of God for other people. It motivates us to go further in a mission. It draws us deeper into relationship with Jesus Christ. God changes our heart. He reveals himself to us through prayer. So prayer is very, very important and And that's why we're going to emphasize it uh, this morning. Now, the title of this morning's sermon, you might have noticed, is How to Have a Vital Relationship with the Living God. And I I have to confess, I don't like the title very much. Pastor Mark picked it out. Um, (laughs) But, um, you know, but I went along with it. No, actually, I did. But I I didn't like it. I struggled with it. And sometimes you just got to put something down. And um, the reason I don't like it very much is because, you know, really our relationship with God really isn't about how to. It's not about formulas uh, it's, it's not about trying to manage God in our relationship, trying to get our hands around him and, and get things down pat. There's not a magical formula. It's, certainly there, there are principles and things that we are to apply, but it's a relationship. And we're dealing with a God that created the universe, a God that is mighty and holy and perfect in every way, and, and we sometimes think that we can manage God. C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia books said this about one of his characters says this about Aslan. If you've read the books, you know that Aslan is this mighty lion who is sort of a type of Christ. He represents Christ. He's the Christ figure in the book. And uh, I think one of the children asked somebody else, so can, can we approach Aslan about Aslan? Is he a tame lion? Because he's intimidating. He's huge. He's enormous with this deep voice in the movie. And, and, and the person responds, oh, no, he's not a tame lion. He's wild. But he's good. And it's kind of that way with God. God, we cannot tame God. He's not a tame God, but he's wild and he's powerful. He's unmanageable, but he is good. And we um, we really do our spiritual health disservice when we think that we can manage our relationship with God with formulas. But it's human nature to do that, isn't it? We try to figure out God, try to find the key in our relationship with God, try to domesticate him. We come up with lists and statements and ideas about God. 
many of them very true and helpful, but they always feel a little bit short. We can never fully encapsulate who God is, the totality of who he is in our human wording. Now, now don't hear me wrongly here. Certainly we should try to to grow in our understanding of God. The Bible tells us we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We are to grow in our understanding of God. The Bible is very clear. And if we're talking relationships here, though, in all relationships, if you want it to grow, what do you have to do? If you want to keep it fresh and interesting and, and growing, then you've got to grow in your understanding of the other person, your appreciation for them, your understanding of who they are and how they work. And it's the same with, with God. And, and statements and ideas and lists can help us to get a, a bigger and better picture of God and how he works, what he's doing, what he's done, what he will do. But the problem is if we're not careful... We can begin to think and act as if we do certain things, then we can get God to do what we want him to do. And our relationship is not to be defined by formulas, not by transactions, as if we could manipulate God. Now, having said all this, with an awareness of our human tendency to take those types of statements and, and can make them into contrived formulas sometimes, and at the risk of contradicting myself, well, let's take a look at Isaiah 6, and let's see if we can draw out some elements, not a formula, but some elements that are in all relation, that are in all elements of a growing relationship with God, specifically in the area of prayer, and then extrapolate them to our prayer life. So if you would, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, and we'll be looking at, um, at these elements. And they, it's, a, it's a tool that was introduced to me several years ago. It's been very helpful to me. It's a tool, not a formula, but it helps to remind me of the elements of prayer in a growing relationship. And many of you have maybe done this. But it's a great reminder, and it stands for ACTS, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. So turn with me to Isaiah 6. Now, this is one of my um, favorite Old Testament passages, and there are several different sermons that you could preach out of this passage, but I will limit myself to one this morning. In this passage, Isaiah pulls back the curtain, and he gives us a glimpse into the worship of heaven. And it's a strange and, and kind of intimidating look. There's these, these seraphs, these things, that creatures that we have no, no frame of reference for with six wings and they're flying around covering their eyes, their feet and faces and they're, and, they're, and they're worshiping God over and over and over. And there's this huge temple and there's smoke everywhere and there's, um, can, it says that there's the, the robe, the train of his robe. So it's not even the whole robe uh, of the train, not the train of the robe, it's just a little bit of the edges of it, but it fills the whole temple. And that's this glimpse that we get. Now, a little bit of context. It's always good to get context when you're reading the Bible. A little bit of context before chapter 6. In the first five chapters of Isaiah, we, uh, we see God thundering down judgment, impending judgment. Woe is Israel because of this. Woe are you because of this. Over and over and over. He's, he's thundering down judgment, and he's, he's warning them of what's going to happen because of their disobedience and their sin. You see, the Bible tells us that they are the chosen people of God that they've been delivered from slavery in Egypt. Uh, they've been given the Ten Commandments. They uh, have the law and the prophets. Uh, they have a history of God working in their midst to intervene, lots of miracles, and they've been given the land, the promised land of, of Israel. The problem is, God says, they've taken all for granted. Uh, they've turned their back on him. They're chasing other gods. Um, and they give him a little bit of lip service once in a while, thinking that if they just work the system, work that formula, Maybe make a few sacrifices here and there on the right days. Um, throw up a prayer once in a while. 
observe worship and festivals for tradition's sake, well, then things will be all right with God. That's the equation. They think they've got it figured out. Well, God says in the first five chapters of Isaiah, you've got another thing coming. Don't forget who you're dealing with. And then we find chapter 6, and God shows them who they're dealing with. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Now, this is a picture of what the Bible means when it tells us that God is holy. On one level, holy simply means something that's set apart, as in different from or other than. You know, when we talk about the other attributes of God, things like his trustworthiness and his love and his goodness, we have a little bit of a frame of reference. It's possible to describe them in light of our own experiences with other people. And so when it, we can think of somebody who's good, who is trustworthy most of the time, and and, um, and things like that, and who is loving. But holiness, by definition, is, is something that we have no frame of reference for. I mean, who among us is perfect, holy in every way? And so by very definition, it's hard to kind of get our minds around it and understand the concept of holiness. Think about this. If you had this experience, you come down in the middle of the night to get a drink of water in the kitchen, you flip on the light, and there's a bug kind of crawling across the floor. You're feeling kind of charitable, so you don't squash it. But you walk by it, and what happens? A lot of times the bug either scurries off real fast, but a lot of times it kind of freezes, just kind of freezes. Hopes you don't notice it. Hopes you won't squash it. It's probably paralyzed by fear. And what do you think is going on in that bug's mind? Does it really understand the difference between you and it? You think it could take in more than the fact that the edge of that guy's shoe is way larger than I am? It's three millimeters high, and it's looking up at you? How could it ever possibly conceive of what it would be like to move through the world being a guy who's 6'2"? How could that ever happen? Do you suppose that insect has the capacity to perceive the gap between the little nerve bundle in its brain and, and the capacity of the human brain? Well, God is to me, not just as you are to that bug, but as you are to one of the tiniest subatomic particles that make up that bug's body. On the scale from blind and puny to brilliant and powerful, there's small, big, and greater... And then way beyond that, far, far beyond imagining, is, is God. God is holy and perfect in all ways, in every way. Now, what does this have to do with prayer and a vital relationship with God? Well, growing vital relationship with God must begin with, must be grounded in a vision of, an understanding of who God is. Holy, awesome, perfect. Worthy of our praise. Worthy of our adoration. It can be part of our, our prayer life where we focus on the names of God, on his character, on his beauty, on his holiness, on his attributes. But, but our prayer life must not stop there. And neither must our relationship with God. There has to be honesty. In view of God's holiness, there must be a response. And the appropriate response, the only appropriate response, is found in Isaiah 6, verse 5. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So the first part is adoration. The second part is confession. You know, studies show 
And our experiences confirm in our world that, particularly in our American culture, that there's a disturbing trend toward what is called the victim mentality, a mindset in which people um, shift the burden of responsibility from themselves to others when they do something wrong. I'm not responsible because of how my parents raised me. It's, it's not my fault. The culture at my job, the culture on my team, the culture at my school is what caused me to do that. And along with the victim mentality, the line has also been moved on how to determine good character. Instead of measuring ourselves against God and His standards, His character, we often find ourselves measuring ourselves against others, thinking things like, I've got things to work on. I know that. I understand. I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But I'm not as messed up as most people. Or, I know that wasn't the right thing to do, but most people do it too. Biblically speaking, we are to be measured against God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You cannot have a vital, growing relationship with God unless you acknowledge that in, in, in your prayer life. And not just once. It's not a transaction, but on a regular basis. It helps us keep a short account with God, gives us a clear conscience, and keeps us growing and humble and moldable before Him. It's just being honest. Psalm 32, verse 1 through 5, is a passage that King David wrote. He was certainly a man who knew and understood grace and the need for confession and forgiveness. He wrote, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. And then he speaks about the, the consequences of not confessing. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You know, unconfessed sin has consequences. When I read that passage, I'm sure some of you, and I, I know when I've read it in the past, my mind goes to a time when I was holding on to a sin. I wasn't being honest, coming clean with God or somebody else. And, and that's what it does. It, it, it weighs you down. It burdens you. It, it saps you. It, it creates a barrier between you and God. It creates a barrier between us and other people. Even within ourselves, we become divided, disconnected from who God's created us to be. And we begin to shrivel up a little bit in our spirit, in our heart. And we begin to pretend to be something we're not. It turns us into a, a caricature, almost a cartoonish figure. It keeps us moving from, from moving forward with God. But when we get a view of the living God, high lifted up in His glory and holiness, just like Isaiah did, it drives us to an understanding of our need and our grace, and it drives us to confess like Isaiah, I am undone, I'm finished, I have no hope next to God, for I am a sinful man. But Isaiah's story doesn't end there, and ours doesn't have to either. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. You know, we can't take away our sin, but God can. And God will as we come to him humbly, confessing our sins and seeking his mercy. King David, who wrote Psalm 32, also wrote this in Psalm 139. 
kind of the, you can see his attitude, his heart of wanting to be clean before God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Regular introspection in a relationship with God where we do heart checkups, where we check for areas where we fall short, we ask God's Spirit to, to reveal to us the things that need to be confessed so we can find God's forgiveness and grace are essential in a vital relationship with God and essential to be a part of our prayer life. So there's adoration and confession. Next is thanksgiving. That's what we often think of. We thank God. We're to express gratitude to God. I would say that and submit that if there isn't a growing gratitude in your heart and life, then you probably really don't understand who God is. If there isn't a, a growing gratitude in your life for the things God has done for you, the things he has given you, for how he's blessed you, then you probably don't really understand his holiness. You probably don't really understand the depth of sin in your life. And you certainly don't understand the grace that has been given to you. Your gratitude should be the defining mark of a Christian. The Bible is rife with reasons for us to be thankful. Psalm 136 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. He has freed us from our enemies, and he provides what we need. Psalm 103, He forgives all your sins, heals your diseases, redeems your life. Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He has compassion on those who fear him. And not only does God forgive us and love us, he gives us responsibility, which is a tremendous reason to be grateful. I mean, think about it. God gives us responsibility to, rest, to represent him in this world. He trusts us enough to do that. He commissions us. He sends us. Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the, Lord, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. You know, many of us have prayer lists, you know, things that, and people that we pray for, and that's good. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But shouldn't we also have on our prayer list an equal number of, of items that we're thankful for? Kind of a record of things that we thank God for? Family, health, work, house, church, school, friends, the country we live in, the freedoms that we have, the beauty of creation. Thanks for Christ and salvation and grace and mercy and eternal life. Gratitude really is a spiritual discipline. You know, if in 2012 we want to move forward in our relationship with God and move forward in our prayer life, then in our prayers we need to cultivate an attitude of and habit of thanking God. Finally, the last letter in our acronym is S, supplication. You know, every week many of you submit supplications and prayer requests to us as a staff and the prayer team. And we pray for those things. We thank you for them. And every week most of us uh, even if we don't do that, we do spend time asking God for things. Help, wisdom, strength, that our finances would meet up at the end of the month. Uh, our natural instinct is in a time of trouble to do what? Cry out, God, help me. God, save me. That's how God designed us. It's what he wants from us. He wants us to let him know what we want or need. Not because he doesn't know or because he needs to be enlightened about it. But because simply that's how relationships work. You tell the other person what's important to you, even though it might seem trivial. You let them know what's going on. You trust them with your thoughts, your fears, your dreams, your doubts. They help you sort things out. They give you perspective. The Bible says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, 
by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, there's that word again, present your request to God. You know, just as an aside, part of understanding where we're at in a relationship with God, if we want to do kind of a heart checkup, is to take a look at our supplications, the nature of them. What do we pray about? Are they primarily us-centered? Or are a lot of them others-centered? What's the tone of the request? Are they demanding? Or entitled? Or are they trusting, thankful, expectant, but not presumptuous? You know, again, as we... We can draw some parallels from our human experiences. As we grow up, what happens? The nature of the things we ask for changes, right? Some of it still stays the change. It's the same, but it should. As we grow older, the nature of the things we ask for should change. As a toddler, what do we do? I need food. I need water. I need change. I need help tying my shoes. When you grow up, I need help with my homework. I need to know how to drive. I need to understand the opposite sex. When you grow up further, you ask for insight into yourself, for wisdom, for guidance, hopefully. You ask for somebody to understand you, your dreams, your fears, your thoughts. In our relationship with God, we will never outgrow, nor should we, the need to ask God to provide the basic things, food, shelter, the things we need to take care of a family, a job. And we will never outgrow the need to ask God for wisdom as parents or for understanding a spouse or for comfort when we're hurting. But hopefully we will grow in our relationship with God in our prayer life where we are praying for things like the salvation of other people, for the direction of our country and its leaders, for the development of godly character in our lives and the opportunity to honor God in both the good times and the bad times. A good goal is found in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks. Again, there's that word. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Your prayer, when it's boiled down to its essence, really is a, a conversation with God, which is amazing when you think about it. Again, the God is described in Isaiah, holy and perfect, high and lifted up. He wants to have a conversation with us, and we can have a conversation with him. We can listen, but we can also talk to him. It's, 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 it's a, really a gift. And if you want to move forward in your relationship with God in the coming year, prayer has to be central. And it's simply expressing adoration to God for who He is. It's being honest with God, confessing the sin in your life, and asking Him to show the things you need to change. It's thanking God for what He has done, is doing, and what He promises that He will do. And it's supplication, bringing your, your requests before God humbly, trustingly, expectantly. In 2012, may we be as individuals and as a church, people of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. And we do thank you for the gift of prayer. We are humbled by the fact that we can have a relationship with you through Jesus' death on the cross. We thank you that Jesus rose from the dead and, and his spirit has been sent and we can know your presence and we can be guided and directed through that spirit. Father, as we come to the table now, we, we, we will take some time to think and reflect and as David did, ask you to search our hearts and examine us. Help us to be open that, Father, and to confess any sin and keep a short record with you. 
Father, we, we also will come to the table knowing that, that when we confess our sins, there is assurance, there is hope. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness, our wrongdoing, our sins. So, Father, we thank you for that. Lord, we worship and adore you. We confess our need. We thank you for all that you've done. And we ask for your help. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.